Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe. Uh, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski and we'll be talking today about the geopolitics and uh, Europe after the war. My guest today is a distinguished writer and analyst, Bruno Massage, who is the senior advisor in Flint Global, a former minister of European Affairs in Portugal, and the author of, uh, among others, Down of Eurasia, Baton Road, the Chinese World Order, Our History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America, and Geopolitics for the End of Time, From the Pandemic to the Climate Crisis. Uh, welcome to Liberal Europe. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. We, of course, will be relating also as well to the to the Freedom Games, in which um, Bruno Massage, together with Mark Leonard and uh, Thomas Hendrik Ilves and Natalie Tocci and Piotr Boras, will be opening the night on the um, on the September 15, talking about uh, Europe after the war, the war that is still ongoing. But perhaps I would like to start with asking you, what you as analysis uh, as as analyst of foreign affairs learned about Europe from the um, invasion of Ukraine? I, I, I don't think there was anything too surprising. You know, I hear a lot that Europe surprised positively because many people fear the reaction would be much more hesitant. There would be lack of unity. Uh, well, perhaps in other scenarios. Uh, it's still a bit of a puzzle for historians why, why Russia and Putin preferred to have uh, a war that had no false flags, no no real attempt to to divide Europeans. I think those attempts started later and perhaps could even be more successful this year. We can talk about that than next year. But in February 2022, it was just an open war of aggression, then followed by a genocidal policy in the places that Russia occupied. And in that context, I think what would be surprising would be if Europe did not react. I think Europe reacted very well. If you look carefully at the figures, actually, Europe, uh, if you include UK, has extended uh, more support to Ukraine, if you count military, financial, humanitarian, than the United States, and by a significant margin. Uh, and I think even military support, the two sides have roughly comparable amounts. Uh, so it's, it's I think, uh, it doesn't come across in public opinion as much, but I think Europe has stepped up from a place of uh, lack of preparation over the past decade. I think that was the problem. And obviously, when it comes to the military side, Europeans were entirely unprepared for what happened. But given that lack of preparation, I think the response was, was quite strong. Uh, we see if it, if it can continue. Um, so it didn't surprise me because I think the, the way the war took place, uh, I, th I would have expected this kind of reaction. In your book, uh, Down of Eurasia, you analyze the continents, uh, the European Union, China, Russia, altogether, which was, uh, well, surprisingly, a relatively new lens to look at those, well, regions, which are, in fact, one continent. Do you think that this peripheral, from the perspective of the whole Eurasia war, would change the, the direction for this whole continent, if we're talking about Eurasia? I think that perspective that I defended in the book uh, has now become very common. 
sometimes we forget about how things used to be. But, you know, 10 years ago, we discussed European politics in terms of Franco-German relations, um, role for Poland, North and South, um, differences between the North and South. All that now actually looks quite quite distant and it doesn't reflect realities anymore. And now we genuinely have a Eurasian politics. Uh, you know, if you follow in the news every day, uh, questions are about what will what will Russia become? Uh, will Russia turn away from the West? Will Russia become a new Iran? Will Russia become a Chinese economic colony? What role does China have in Europe? Uh, this is now top of the news and of the political discussions. Um, what kind of understanding can Russia and Europe can can China and Europe have? Uh, does Europe need to align entirely with the US on, on the China question or not. So we have a much broader landscape uh, for our analysis and the way the pieces interact. For example, it's been a very important question, the China-Russian relations, how does that affect Ukraine? How does that affect Ukraine war? Uh, and how does uh, the future look like in terms of Russia-China relations? So it's interesting that now in Europe, one of the important questions that we discuss is how how uh, the China-Russia uh, Entente will develop. It's as if, and I said this in the book, and I think it's come to pass, it's as if we are in the 19th century and discussions are about how the different European pieces interact, Russia, uh, United, uh, Germany, uh, France, uh, the UK, a little bit outside Europe and trying to balance the different pieces. And now we have uh, the same dynamic, but on a Eurasian stage with, in a way, these three, four blocks. Notice also how India has become central to our discussions, particularly on the war in Ukraine, India's role in importing Russian energy and keeping the Russian economy afloat. And then the United States has taken up the role that the UK had in 19th century Europe uh, because it is a balancer, offshore balancer, not directly involved, with troops, very, very reminiscent of what uh, the UK used to do in the 19th century. So I do think we now live in a Eurasian world in that sense. Um, our horizon have been really expanded in just 10 years. The level of engagement, um, especially by the US, which for, I think, the last 20 years has been trying unsuccessfully the pivot to Asia, suggests that this war is much more than just the war of dominance over well eastern part of ukraine how do you how how would you frame this war because on one hand some people argue that this is very it is not very useful to frame it as a war of the west against russia this is the the sort of russian narrative as well uh but and many countries which are not engaged in this war directly are refusing to, to support uh, either uh, sides but at the same time i think that especially for americans this this is a symbol of something bigger, perhaps of their credibility on the world stage. Perhaps this is the first salvo in the rivalry with China. They want to weaken Russia, which is the potential partner of China. How do you see it from this geopolitical global standpoint? Yes, that is a very good question. We tend to, to look at the news from the week and there hasn't been sufficient effort in understanding the war as a historical development. Um, I see it as a almost a, a, an old-fashioned colonial uh, imperial war uh, with uh, clear elements of uh, 
genocidal conquest that many colonial wars in the past have had, and some wars waged by Western European countries and other parts of the world. Uh, so in that sense, there is nothing terribly new. There's a lot that is shocking because in sort of the grand historical narrative that we have built, uh, we have defined ourselves against this world, uh, and we believed it was it was the past. So this is how one should interpret, I think, the dynamics of the war. Uh, it is a war of uh, national uh, liberation, national survival on the Ukraine side, and a war of colonial conquest on the Russian side. By the way, a colonial project that has been ongoing for centuries, not not since 2014, but for centuries. People are starting to understand that. Now, the United States, obviously, is the guarantor of a different kind of global order, where, of course, power is present. But all geopolitical conquest of territory was is not part of the coordinates of the operating system of the American-led order. So the, the Russian invasion is a clear challenge. And I think there is the danger for the United States, if the invasion is successful, that the American-led order will unravel. Russia does not have the capacity to replace it with anything else. We would have an interregnum of increased chaos and disorder as the American-led order would, would unravel. And then perhaps China would have an opportunity uh, that it is not having now and struggling with now to, to build something new on the ruins of the American-led order. So I see the dynamic as, in a way, Russia playing a, a destructive role which could open the way for China's uh, rebuilding of the world order in its image. Um, in that sense, similar to what happened with wars in the past that have given opportunity to the U.S. Uh, to, to build a new order on the ruins of, of the traditional European order. There is a lot about the Russia's invasion that is um, outdated, anachronistic, but that doesn't make it any less of a threat. Um, what it means is that the, the existing world order is under threat, whatever the ideas inspiring Russia are. And uh, we may well believe they won't be successful in the end, but that's not the question. The question is the short and medium term and the uh, absolutely destructive uh, impact of, of the invasion. I think it's very insightful to define it in a more, let's say, 19th century uh, terms than 21st century terms, this um, territorial war that Russia is waging. Also, because when we think about the threat that USSR posed to the Western world, especially to Western Europe, it was very much in terms of either total destruction or ideological challenge. Uh, the, the, the Russia doesn't really even pretend to have, well, maybe a little bit of conservative um, flavor, but not, it's, it's, it's not a serious challenge to the, um, let's say, liberal democracy as such. And this is very much an asymmetric uh, threat. So the Eastern Europe feels threatened of invasion, why the Western Europe is afraid of escalation. Do you think that um, if Europe would have to face the, this Russian threat in the future uh, with less American engagement, either because of the, some developments in Taiwan or because of the political change US, do you think that the Russian threat could be a unifying or, um, or dividing uh, factor? In Europe. Yes, you're right. This this could be a question one year from now or a year and a half from now. Um, I think the core of the European Union and the UK would, would stand by Ukraine. Uh, the support would uh, not be sufficient for what Ukraine wants to do. 
uh, you would be sufficient to keep uh, Ukraine in the fight. The war could change um, tragically more in the direction of a guerrilla resistance war. Um, it would be much more difficult for Ukraine. Uh, I think probably we, if that happens, if a Republican candidate wins and we draw support entirely for Ukraine, if that happens, um, I think probably we'll stop talking about Ukraine's possibility to recover all its territory and the debate will become again as it was in the first two months about Ukraine's survival. But I think most European countries will step up. Uh, it will imply dramatic changes in how we organize our economies. Uh, there will have to be a, a quick, which should be already happening, but a, a quick ramping up of industrial production in weapons, uh, but not only weapons. I think a few European countries will uh, abandon ship, uh, will say there's no longer any point, but I think there will be very few, and I don't even want to suggest names. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Hungary is already jumped ship, uh, didn't even need these more difficult circumstances. Uh, but I think the core of the EU will, will, keep, will, will remain united. Uh, the messages we see from, from France, from Germany, and from Poland are reassuring in that respect. Uh, and I think at least this, um, uh, these three countries, would, together with the UK, would guarantee that the policy would not revert entirely to, to something else. In the ECFR, of which we are both members, uh, the buzzword, and not just in ECFR, I think, in, in very much of the European debate, the strategic autonomy was the buzzwords. Do you think that strategic autonomy, uh, just to uh, use the Monty Python metaphor, is it that or is it resting? I think it's resting. People don't seem to like the word, the term. Uh, they, they should maybe come up with a new one. Uh, I mean, I think the ideas should appeal to, to Poland, to Poles, uh, but clearly in Poland the, the, the idea is not very popular. The way he was born, the way he was developed, it was not the best. Uh, I think in his speech in Bratislava for Globesec, uh, Macron had a much better approach. He presented strategic autonomy as an insurance policy, not as an anti-American policy, but as an insurance policy. And I think people in Central Eastern Europe must be aware that American politics has become entirely unpredictable. They have a character like Ramaswamy, uh, who could be vice president uh, in a Trump administration, and then could very quickly become president if something happens to Trump, or could even be elected president if Trump is arrested before the election. I don't see DeSantis being uh, capable of winning. And I see Biden quite fragile. The latest polls show that. So we are, we are perhaps one year away from the scenario I described in the previous question. And strategic autonomy, uh, Europe's ability to act alone if necessary, not to act alone out of ideology, but to act alone as an insurance policy. This should be top of our agenda and in, in Central Europe as well, not just in France. Uh, so it's a bit frustrating for me that uh, we seem to be stuck with uh, the way this discussion started. We didn't please everyone, but we should, we should move on because the issue is important. Do you think that because what you described as strategic autonomy as, as hedging, I think it's very reasonable and I think all sides would agree that this is the way that perhaps we can move forward without keeping either French or Poles entirely happy. Um, I think what uh, Emmanuel Macron wants, and I think this is a strategic question of France since at least the goal, is the strategic autonomy is emancipation. 
uh, the sovereignty. Well, when you speak about autonomy, of course, we speak about about U.S. And I think it was very clear in the, this divergence between Macron and von der Leyen during the China, uh, visit in China. Do you think that this is the way to, to, to go for Europe, especially on the U.S.-Chinese question? Because I think that would be defining for the uh, for the this Western transatlantic alliance how Europe would uh, the EU would address the Chinese question. Uh, I think people, most people, the establishment, uh, the mainstream view in France and Germany is quite different from the American view on China. And we shouldn't uh, hide these differences. Uh, I think many people in Paris and Berlin are unhappy with what they see as an excessively confrontational approach. Um, In part because, and this has been told to me in Brussels many times by EU officials, because the the European perspective is different, is fundamentally different. Uh, We don't, we are not concerned with the question of uh, global leadership. We don't see ourselves as a contender in in that particular competition. And it doesn't create the same anxiety uh, to look at China and see it as a contender, as a potential rival, uh, as a challenger to to the American order. Uh, I think Europeans, many Europeans, would be comfortable with a certain rebalancing of global power in a way that the U.S. is not. The U.S. becomes immediately very anxious about any idea that uh, a country could come close in economic and political and military power to the U.S. So I think those differences will remain. Uh, I don't see them as as dramatic. They should be addressed head on and and we should be conscious that they exist. There's still a huge amount of room for agreement between Europe and U.S. on China. But if we try to have agreement on everything, I don't think it will be possible. Emancipation, as you say, I agree, this is what Macron wants, even though he doesn't always say it publicly. Um, But we all know that in in private, he he has been quite clear on this. But the question is, um, even if we don't agree with Macron that emancipation should be an explicit policy, the question is that emancipation may still happen, whether Europeans want it or not, uh, because the U.S. is changing very dramatically and very quickly. It's not just a question of being focused on Asia. It's also that American political culture is changing. Uh, it's the fact that 70 or 80 years after the Second World War, we now have a generation that has been brought up in an entirely non-European world. I think the previous the generation that is still in power was brought up in a different context, where America looked up to Europe as a cultural even political reference. And that is all, it's all changed. Uh, it's a very different America. It's very different from the time when I lived there 20 years ago. I mean, the changes just uh, strike me as uh, extraordinary. And so it may well happen that America wants to go in a different direction. Uh, and then it won't be up to us. <laughs> we won't be able to, to say we prefer things as they exist now. We'll have to adapt to a world where we'll be much more alone. And then it will be emancipation, um, uh, perhaps against uh, the wishes of many Europeans, but I believe it will happen. So even though I disagree with Macron and as the way he turns it into a programmatic, uh, almost ideological mission, uh, I think he's talking about a real issue that will be for, be, be before us uh, very soon. Perhaps to, to, to close our conversation, um, the EU has declared um, many times in, for example, European Union Global Strategy in 2016, that one of the main 
the my aims of the foreign EU's foreign policy should be the the keeping rule based world order. At the same time, it's it's almost implicit that when we talk about rule based world order, we mean the U.S. dominated uh, global order, which clearly Russia is contesting. China, I think, to a large extent, at least regionally, some some authors such as Raj Doshi claim that it's also the global challenge that China is posing now to the U.S. So you, uh, I think, face under Trump administration certain challenges to keeping the world order in which Americans were anti-climate uh, and anti-Iran uh, agreements. How do you think that uh, you should approach the post-American rule-based order? Or do you think that rule-based order is basically an, uh, a vision that we have because of the American hegemony and before because of the Cold War and this uh, duopoly of power? How, how do you imagine this future world order that EU is pledging to, to defend? Well, I think we'll, we'll have rules. Again, I talked about the sort of a Russian project to return us to a world of um, raw power, where essentially there would be no rules, but there might be temporary agreements between the great powers. We've known this world in the past, um, but I think this, process, this, this project will not be successful. We'll have rules, but the question is, which rules? So I actually like to talk about a rules-based disorder, which is uh, a perhaps paradoxical expression, but what it means is we are going to have rules of some kind, but it's still an open question what those rules will be. And I think China has many different ideas for how to organize the world order. But it is still true. And, you know, I wrote a book on the Belt and Road that, among other things, was trying to make the case that China has a ordering vision. For the, for, the, for the world. Uh, there would be institutions, there would be rules, there would be procedures. We wouldn't like almost all of them and the values that would be behind those rules and institutions, but it wouldn't be a chaotic world of raw power in China's vision, uh, in, my, in my opinion. So the question is, which rules will, will dominate? Uh, I suspect there will be a balance between different... Uh, perspectives and perhaps we'll talk about the world order as being shaped and you know 60% by the US 20% by China uh 20% by Europe uh and I guess that would be my answer that Europe has to be actively concerned with in what really matters to Europeans try to infuse the global order with its own preferences uh its own values its own favored rules which in many cases are different from the U.S. We've seen that. We don't like to talk so much about that now during the war. But for example, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, goes uh, directly against uh, what the European Union stands for. People will tell you, Europe, European Union also has subsidies. Yes, we have subsidies, but we don't have subsidies that discriminate on the basis of nationality. And not just in the internal market. Uh, subsidies would apply for anyone buying an electrical vehicle made in China or an electrical vehicle made in the U.S. or made in Brazil. The point is we want to subsidize electrical vehicles for the green transition, but we don't discriminate on the basis of where they come from. If you look at the IRA in the U.S., it openly and cheerfully as discriminates on the basis of nationality. So you can't quite say that we agree with the U.S. On, on the rules. We agree on many foundational rules about transparency, 
uh, about uh, so individualism, uh, about free market, and so on. But there are also many differences. Uh, and that, you know, takes me to the conclusion that we have to embrace the geopolitical project of shaping the world order. Whether it will be possible to have this kind of distribution of power between the main actors uh, and have a balance that doesn't turn into open conflict uh, remains to be seen, but I think it's the most optimistic prospect. I don't believe that we can exclude China from the world order. China is not North Korea. Uh, you won't be able to. We won't be able to do it even economically. You know, I've been following very closely how the linking is working out. There's a couple of very good papers from the World Bank and the Jackson Hole Conference, and they show that you may you may try to exclude certain finished Chinese products, but then what happens is that you'll be imported China you'll be imported finished products from Vietnam or Mexico that were manufactured with Chinese components. So it's a bit of a walk-a-mole game. And China is so large, its economy is so significant that I very much doubt you can build a new world economy without any Chinese participation. If China is going to participate, then we have to see how. That's, I think, where Europeans can, can make a contribution to sort of tone down the idea, popular in the US, that we can make China disappear. You know, where I disagree with with discussion in America is not about the criticism of the Chinese regime. It's about this idea that because we don't like the Chinese regime, we can make it disappear. Just on the basis of a realistic approach, I don't think that's possible. And if we can't make it disappear, we have to find some kind of understanding where we defend our values and the things we truly care about. Uh, but China will still have a role in the global order. It's in, uh, inevitable. Using the metaphor from your uh, book Geopolitics for the End Time, uh, uh, it's the uh, of the Earth as the spaceship. Let's hope that the pilots at least won't be fighting for the steering wheel. Right. It doesn't mean that we that we have to agree on everything, but we we can agree on on the fact that if, if we fight for the steering wheel, we're definitely going to crash. This is one thing that we know for 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 sure. Uh, as for, as for the direction, I don't know, but um, well, you know, if you a, think yeah. if you think that it's an automatic pilot that is being uh, guided by software lines, uh, I think uh, you know there are many programmers, and uh, some will write most of the program, but they have to allow others to introduce some lines of code into the program. <laughs> this is perhaps the theme of your next book on metaverse. Uh, yes, we're looking looking forward to to, 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 to this one. Um, and now I'm uh, thank you very much for this conversation and looking forward to seeing you on stage at Freedom Games in Łódź. Thank you so much, Bruno Massage. Looking forward to being in Łódź. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please tune in for Ricardo Silvestro next week. Uh, until next week, uh, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.